happen worthy, new word, lives. That is, that we're called to live lives worthy of Jesus, Jesus-worthy lives. That's the fruit of maturity. And so let me give you three statements to start out this evening to give us a bit of context for this message. First statement, to live a Jesus-worthy life requires maturity. It requires that we grow up in faith. And that's what we looked at last week. That call by Paul, that prayer for Paul, that we would be mature, knowing the will of God. That is, knowing God's great plan of salvation as it's been revealed in Christ and how it's working towards a goal that all of all things we, we saw will be reconciled to God through Christ and that the more we are understanding of this, the more we understand who God is, what his will is, who Jesus is, that will just bring us to spiritual maturity. So to live a life worthy of Jesus requires maturity, growing up in the faith. But, statement number two, maturity, and that's what we're going to see this evening, is not an end in itself. Maturity leads to transformed lives. Maturity, spiritual maturity, leads to transformed lives. Indeed, is visible, is only visible in transformed lives. Lives that are not transformed, therefore, are not truly mature. And thirdly, that might sound like a harsh statement. It is a harsh statement in some sense, or or certainly a clear statement. Lives that are not transformed uh, are not truly mature. That is a clear statement. Therefore, statement number three, we have to understand Maturity, Christian maturity, is a process. It's not an instantaneous transformation. It's a process. If we read through particularly the Gospels in the New Testament, we'll see Paul uses the same language here. Jesus uses the language of sowing and reaping, planting and growing. I was just on the way home from church this morning, and I turned the corner around to my village, and I realized there'd be a field full of corn which had now been harvested within the last few days since I've last been passed. And that's, it was just like, wow, yeah, I can actually see right across that field now there's a harvest being brought in. That's the picture that, uh, that Jesus uses. And um, when something is, is sown, it takes time for it to grow. But there is a harvest at the end. So statement number three, um, maturity is a process, not an instant. Okay, so I prayed for maturity last week, and that's an ongoing thing, uh, especially for uh, new believers. So a mature Christian church is always in process, as it were. There are some Christians who already are mature. Their lives have been transformed, and indeed they're investing into the lives of of people in the church who are not as mature. That's the way uh, Jesus wants it to be. That's the way Paul wants it to be. That he says we should be, um, for example, in Titus chapter 2, he says the older women should be investing in the lives of the younger women. The older men should be investing in the lives of the younger men. So we see this process, that's how it should be working um, in a church. That this this maturity is always going on um, all the time. That's one way it's always going on. And just to connect to the announcements I just made, or or the invitation I just extended. The other way is obviously that um, unbelievers, non-Christians, people who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, are coming to know Jesus Christ, are beginning down the journey of Christian discipleship, following Jesus, and are then growing to become mature believers themselves. And that's what baptism is. Baptism is the, the marker point between somebody who is not a Christian, 
taking on upon themselves, being given the sign of belonging to Jesus, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and beginning that road of discipleship. So that's a great thing in the life of the church, which is why we extend this invitation. Be part of that for those people in uh, two weeks' time. So we're going to put the focus this evening on statement number two, basically, transformed lives, Jesus-worthy lives. Remembering as we do so always that we're on a journey of growth. So we ask the question, therefore, what does a Jesus-worthy life look like? And that's basically the answer that Paul gives us in the remainder of this text, from verse 10 through to verse 14. We looked at verses 9 and the beginning of verse 10 last week. That was Paul's prayer. And, and Paul, he wouldn't actually really have to give us this answer. He could just say, as you grow up into Christian maturity... Um, you know, you will see your lives being transformed. And as the church would do that, they would see it automatically. There's a, there's a natural uh, development about it. This is what should just naturally happen through the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we, look, as we grow in the knowledge of God. But Paul does lay it out for us here. He gives it, he gives it to us really practically. He gives us four markers that can help us identify a Jesus-worthy life, a transform, transformed life. Um, and these are the markers that we read in verses 10 through uh, 12. I just want to read them to you here again. So we start in 10a. So I'm praying this, 10a, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Then here are the four markers. They've all got the ING form in English. Here they are. Number one, bearing fruit. What does this life look like? Bearing fruit in every good work, number one. Number two, growing in the knowledge of God. Number three, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. And number four, verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father. Those are the Paul's four marks of what a Jesus-worthy life looks like. But right before we look at those marks and look at what it looks like, I want to step back one, just take one step back and say, what does it mean to live a Jesus-worthy life? Because I think um, some of you may be thinking Jesus-worthy life, worthy of Jesus, that sounds like I have to live or we have to live such good lives, whatever we define good as, but it sounds like I have to live such a good life that somehow I earn this worthiness that I can be counted along with Jesus or I can be counted his follower. And it has to be said, in some, um, in some denominations in the Christian church, we would be not far off the mark in saying that that is, in effect, what is taught and what is preached. To be worthy of Jesus, you have to kind of bring your own goodness and worthiness to the table to earn that worthiness. But that's not what I mean tonight, and I want to take a minute or two to show you that clearly, because it's very crucial that we understand that. There are four times in the New Testament that Paul uses this word worthy to talk about our lives as Christians. I'm going to read them. So, the, so the, one of them is right here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. I'm going to read you the other three here and listen to the context that Paul writes this in. Firstly, in Ephesians chapter, chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, 
Paul writes there, he says, whatever happens, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then finally in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 12, he says, I encourage, comfort and urge you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So I want you to see what Paul is saying here is, is that what he's meaning is that we as Christians should be living in line with the calling we've received from God in Christ, in line with the gospel, in line with Jesus. That's what he's saying. Not we have to be worthy in and of ourselves and, and kind of build ourselves up to a certain point, but rather... To, be, to live worthy of the Lord means to live in line with the calling we've received, in line with the gospel of Jesus, in line with Jesus himself as Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is our saviour. He is the one who said, calling himself the Son of Man, in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to, as we see in the end of our passage tonight in verse 14, to redeem us, that means to forgive us our sins. And so it's really decisive that we understand this point at the outset, looking at a Jesus-worthy life, that we understand, therefore, to live a Jesus-worthy life. Here's my definition. What does it mean? One, that we recognize ourselves as sinners. But that's only half of what it means. That we recognize ourselves as sinners and Jesus as saviour. That he came for us. He came to rescue us because we were lost in sin. And therefore, we can rest, that is, we can trust in Jesus' finished work. His life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And two, we trust in the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sends to be leading us and working in us and changing us. And we actually looked at that here at Church at Five a number of years ago, um, in February of 2017, uh, Brandon preached a message on Galatians 5. And you can go and look at that on the podcast where we talked about um, living by the Spirit. I just wanted to link that in there. So again, my definition, what does it mean to live a Jesus-worthy life? It doesn't mean we have to work ourselves up to be worthy in and of our own selves. It means we recognize ourselves as sinners and Jesus as our glorious Savior. We trust in what he's done for us through his life, death, and, death and resurrection. And we trust in the Holy Spirit whom Jesus has sent to us that that Holy Spirit will be leading us and working in us and with us to change us. And it's really, under, it's really crucial that we have that basic foundation in place before we look at these four markers of what it means to be transformed by the gospel and therefore live a Jesus-worthy life. But let's now look at them, these four markers. I gave them to you a moment ago. Let me remind you of them here again in short form. Bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with God's power, giving joyful thanks. Those are the four marks of a Jesus-worthy life. And I want to look at each one of them now with you this morning. This morning. This evening, I need some... I need some spirit transformation here. Let me start with bearing fruit in every good work. For those of you here this evening who may be non-Christians, the Apostle Paul here, who's the author of the book, the letter to the Colossians, he's using an illustration. 
And I mentioned it a moment ago uh, with sowing and reaping, planting and growing. Paul is using an illustration here of trees bearing fruit to describe how our lives should look as Christians. This is an old illustration. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. If you think about it, we know that a fruit tree is a fruit tree because it bears fruit in season. And the, the, the idea is really simple. Similarly, we should know that a person is a Christian by looking at their lives and seeing how they live. Are they living in accordance with their confession of faith in Jesus? And if we go back to the tree for a moment, if there is no fruit, if we're looking at a tree, you know, maybe in October, um, certainly in this part of the world, if there is no fruit on the tree, either the tree isn't a fruit tree or else it's a sick tree. And that's the conclusion we're supposed to draw as Christians as well. If you look at our lives, and if you can't see from our lives that we're following Jesus Christ, then yes, hard questions have to be asked. Have we understood the gospel of grace? Have we committed our lives to Jesus Christ to be his disciples? Are we living, basically, in accordance with the confession of faith that we made at our baptism? Now, Paul says that fruit is born here, in every good work. And uh, there's quite a few things to unpack this evening. Good works is one of those terms. I can see some of you smiling already. Uh, it's one of those terms in Christianity that are misunderstood, um, especially for us as Protestants. We don't like this, these terms. We think good works. Um, where's the faith, man? Especially for us as Protestants, commending, saying, hey guys, you should be going in good works, that seems very dangerously close to earning our, salvations by our, our salvation by ourselves, by what we do, instead of trusting and having faith in Christ. But it has to be said, good works, this phrase, this understanding, this idea is totally biblical. Indeed, they're the first marker, as we see here, of what a Jesus-worthy life looks like. Jesus did good works, so should we. Uh, one uh, commentator writes this, he says, Paul never hesitates to commend, that is to recommend, to, to lay it on people's hearts, grow in good works. Paul never hesitates to do that. I count here one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times at least that Paul commends that in the New Testament. But, importantly, he simply does not see them as a means of salvation, of a way of getting saved. That is to say, the grounds, the foundation for our salvation before God, the, 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 the reason we can stand in God's presence is because of God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't stand in God's presence saying, look at my works, I deserve to stand here in your presence. We stand here by God's grace, on, by, by faith in Christ, saying, look at what your son Jesus Christ has done for me. We have to understand that. That's... Good works here are not being recommended to us as a foundation or a basis for our salvation. We are saved by our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. But saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. Good works are the fruit of saving faith, not the foundation. So what does Paul mean by good works? Um, because that term has been has so many connotations with it, I thought I would rephrase it and say this. By good works, we mean two things. We mean, firstly, avoiding sin. Avoiding sin. And secondly, practicing virtue. Practicing virtue. 
Virtue has to do with character. That might be a new word for some of you. Um, I wanted to say it that way because good works, it could almost sound like a list of nice things you do. You know, the classic example um, is that you helped an old lady across the street. I don't know where, where that came from. Um, it was later put into a U2 song. So it's, you know, it's made it up there. Um, the idea is, you know, I could go out and do good works today by simply helping as many old ladies across the street as I could. And if I help 10 of them, then I've done 10 good works. I want to avoid that by saying virtue, because virtue has to do with character, with how we are as people. So firstly, good works we mean, by good works we mean avoiding sin and practicing virtue. And I'll say a few more things about that in a second. The strength to avoid sin and practice virtue comes from the gospel. This is what it means to live lives worthy of the gospel. It comes from the gospel, from faith in Christ, and, this is really important, love for Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's just think about, um, let's just think about a really uh, practical example uh, here. Just, it just occurred to me now. In Freiburg, uh, if you walk around here, there are a number of uh, photography places in Freiburg. And this is really, really strange to me. We do not have this in our culture in Australia, but they seem to have it here. You walk by the window of this photography shop and they will have like examples of phot photos they've taken and there are often nudes on them. It's weird. Do you think it's weird? It's pretty weird. Anyway, so how does this work? If I'm, if I'm practicing virtue and avoiding sin, I'm going along there and I don't want to look at these pictures. But the temptation in me as a sinner is to look at these pictures. They're titillating pictures. So how does, it, how does this practicing virtue and avoiding sin work? It works when my love for Christ is stronger than my desire to fall into temptation and to look at these images. When my love for Christ is stronger than the desire to fall into temptation or to give into temptation and to look at these images. Because I might have the, the, the verse in my mind from Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount uh, right from the start, the Beatitudes, um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And in that moment, because I'm immersing myself in the life, in, in, in the spiritual life with God, and I think, what, what would I rather? Would I rather see God, like what we sang before? Or would I rather give in to this temptation? I would rather see God, and so I want to stay pure in heart. So the strength to avoid sin and practice virtue, that's just one example. It comes from the gospel, that is, from faith in what Jesus has done for me. I know that he bore my sins on the cross. So do I want to add to those sins by giving in to this stupid temptation now? No way. Love for Christ. I want to see Christ, and therefore I want to follow the Bible's promise that those who see, who see God, who see Christ, are those who are pure in heart and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So true virtue, and this is so important to understand, true virtue, again, and true avoidance of sin is something that comes from the heart. It's not an external adherence to regulations. It comes from the heart of believing, trusting in Christ's word, that it's true what he says, and believing that and loving him. And practicing virtue builds our character. This is, the, this is We come back to this idea of it being a process. It builds our character step by step, day by day, grace by grace. 
You don't become a person of integrity, honesty, truth, love, humility, hospitality, gentleness, self-control, just overnight. But by the small decisions of life that you make every single day or whenever you're challenged to make that decision. And that's what I would call a habit of grace. It's a habit that you make uh, not out of your own strength, but basically out of grace, out of thankfulness to Christ, out of faith in him and out of love for him. Habit of grace. And so I have to say here, finally, to make it clear though, I think it's important, there is a great gap between Christians and non-Christians here. Um, Christian good works or Christian virtue must come out of faith in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on the cross. They're not simply externally good things. The writer to the Hebrews says that without faith, you cannot please God. You cannot please God. That's why, side note, open parentheses, the reformers, those guys at the Reformation, they distinguished between something called civic um, good and true Christian good. Civic good is when somebody does an ostensibly good thing, like help an old lady across the street, even though they may be a raging atheist. They hate God, but they still help an old lady across the street. There's a civic good. There's a benefit to civilization from that happening. That old lady is helped. It's all good. How, or it's not all good, actually, because there's no faith in that good deed. And the Bible says, without faith, we cannot please God. And so there is a a great gap here between Christians and non-Christians. Christian works, Christian virtue is born out of faith in Jesus Christ. Not only are we doing the right thing, but we're doing it for the right reason. Because we love God and we honor Christ. That's what it means here to bear fruit in every good work. And Paul will unfold as I said uh, last week, there's going to be, uh, sorry, as I said three weeks ago, we're going to see how Paul comes back to these things over and over again in his letter. Paul's going to unfold this a lot more in chapter 3 of Colossians. So that's the first marker and a very important marker. Next, another, the second marker of the, uh, the Jesus-worthy life, that we be growing in the knowledge of God. That is that we grow in our knowledge of who God is, what he is like, more and more. And I want to make three statements here on this point before we go on. We grow, how do we grow in the knowledge of God? We grow in the knowledge of God through revelation, firstly, through fellowship, secondly, and through experience, thirdly. Through revelation, through fellowship, and through experience, whereby revelation is the foundation. That is to say, statement number two, we cannot know God if we don't know God's self-revelation in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. That's the foundation. If we had no Bible, no gospel, no stories of Jesus Christ, we would be left with our own subjective experiences of the supernatural. And it would basically be your word against my word. We have no foundation, no anchor. So therefore, the starting point is always the revelation of God's word in the Holy Scriptures. That's how we know God. The more and better we know 
the scriptures, the more and better we know God. It really is that simple. The scriptures reveal God's character, what he's like, who he is, his will, his plan. Secondly, we need to grow. The, script, the scriptures are the foundation, but it can't stop there. It's a bit like what we, started at the, what we said at the beginning. Maturity will lead to transformed lives. We can't just read the Bible and stop there. We need to grow in the knowledge of God through fellowship. God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our human relationships are an echo of this. It's part of what it means to be created in God's image. It's, it's precisely through fellowship with each other in the church or in the church gathered in the service or in our small groups that we begin to learn more about what God is like because God relates to us and we learn what he is like through spirit-empowered relationships in the church. And this flows in to experience. We need, we need to experience God in our lives to know him. When God revealed himself to Moses uh, at the burning bush before he sent Moses back to Egypt to get God's people out of Egypt, uh, Moses asked him, you know, who are you so I can go and tell the elders uh, who you are? And God said, I am who I am. That's his name. Those words can also be understood at the same time as I will be who I will be. And the idea that many commentators and many scholars have seen from this is that God is saying here, as he reveals his name to Moses, he's saying, I'm a dynamic God. I'm, I'm active in your lives. I'm active. I intervene. I get involved. I make myself visible, experienceable. I'm not a distant, static God of the philosophers who just pushed the first domino and then walked away. I'm involved in the history, in the, in the lives of my people. I am who I am and I will be who I will be. I'll be there for you, is what God is saying to Moses. He's the dynamic God who comes near to us in Jesus Christ, so near to us, he actually becomes one of us. And he's alive and active in our world and in our midst through the Holy Spirit. Guys, we need to know God more and more by experiencing him in our lives based on the fellowship we have here on the basis of revelation through the Holy Scriptures. The more you know the Scriptures and the more you really live that out in fellowship, I'm convinced of this, the more you will see and experience God in your lives. That's the second marker. Growing in the knowledge of God. Now thirdly, being strengthened. This is the long one. Being strengthened. A Jesus worthy life means being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. It's the third marker and it's crucial. It reinforces what we've already seen and said tonight. Firstly, um, there's talk here of endurance and patience. Living a life worthy of Jesus is a high and difficult calling. It needs to be said. It's not easy to follow Jesus. The Christian life is not a life of ease and superficial happiness. It's probably the, one of the most damaging misconceptions out there is that if you accept Jesus into your life, you know, your life will be good. It'll be easy. 
um, you will experience every material blessing. It just simply isn't true. And there's no way you could read through the New Testament and think uh, that that was true. Um, yeah, I was listening, the, uh, the, pract- the interns were with me this week, and they were sitting on the couch watching YouTube videos. And uh, I think there was a video there from Paul Washer. Some of you may know that guy's name. And, um, and he was just characterizing how some preachers out there say, you know, they, they have these testimonies. I hope I'm getting this right, Yanis. They have these testimonies where people would come up and say, hey, you know, I'm a Christian businessman, and um, I was broke and bankrupt and whatever, and then I met Jesus, and now, you know, I'm doing really well, I'm doing really successful. And kind of examples like that. And then uh, Paul Washer was like, I wonder, imagine, they obviously haven't read the New Testament. Look what happened to the apostles. You know, Peter would give up, come up and give testimonies like, yeah, I met Jesus and now I'm going to die. He told me I'm going to be crucified. Yep, I think Paul Washer did it better. And I'm going to move on because I want to say a few more things. But just that we get that through our heads. The Christian life is not a life of ease and superficial happiness. Run the race, we're told. Enter in at the narrow gate. Travel the narrow way. Follow Jesus. That means denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following after him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus Christ calls a person to himself or a man to himself, he bids him come and die. Jesus himself, Luke 9.24, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will surely save it. And that's why Jesus invites us to count the cost of what it means to follow him. And maturity means we've counted the cost and we're aware of the road to come, that we're going to need that endurance. But, this is the other half of the coin, Jesus gives us precious promises. Let me give you two of them here. John 16, verse 33. Jesus gives us precious promises. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Or second precious promise, Matthew 28, 20. Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Just a side note, my term precious promise comes from 2 Peter 1. Um, It's an awesome New Testament phrase. So Jesus will give us what we need for this life and this journey. It is hard, but Jesus will be there with us. And he'll give us what we need for the journey. And that's the third marker here of the Jesus-worthy life. Being strengthened is a passive form of the verb. We don't strengthen ourselves God is strengthening us. And he strengthens us, as Paul writes here, with all power. So this, in fact, actually becomes another precious promise. Precious promise, what I mean by that is that's something to hang our lives on, to hold on to. When things are tough, when you might be facing the loss of a job, or the loss of your health, or, God forbid, the loss of a child, you hold on to precious promises. You are being strengthened by God with all power. That's what Paul is saying here. What is meant is that for any situation, I'm convinced of this, any situation we might face, any situation we might face individually or as a church, God's power is continuously available 
to us as his people. I'm reminded of those verses in Romans chapter 8. Can anything separate us from the love of God? I'm convinced no, Paul says. Can't be separated from his love. God's power is continuously available to us as his people whenever we might need it. And we may take hold of it by faith. But notice here again the goal of this. Why are we being strengthened? It says we're being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. The power is there, the strengthening is there, so that we might have endurance and patience, that we might finish the race. This is not a superficial triumphalism, so that you might win, and then it's over. Crisis situation, say a prayer, we're done, fixed. This is not what the Christian life is. Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying here, that God is strengthening in us with all power that we need for the endurance and patience to get us through a life of following Christ, which is difficult. And that fits together with the two precious promises I gave you. Jesus says, You will have trouble, but hey, take heart, I've overcome the world. And I'm with you, I really am with you always, every day until the end of the age. Difficult situations, sufferings, difficult people will come. But there's power here. We can take heart from this third marker of the, the, the Jesus-worthy life. There's power given here so that we don't abandon the faith, but we persevere with Jesus. So let me just say, uh, pray at this point. Here's a, uh, just an encouragement to pray and ask Jesus for strength. Ask him for this strength. Have faith in this promise. We can do that individually or as a church also. And just before I move on, let me give you now a promise that Jesus makes when we pray. He says in Luke 11, verses 11 through 13. Which of you parents, if your child asks for a fish, will give your child a snake instead? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your, you know, your child come up to you and said, can I have a fish? And you just, here's a snake. Or if your child asks for an egg, you'll give them a scorpion. And Jesus says, if you then, you human beings, you human parents, though you're evil, that was really nice of Jesus to say that. Hey, you guys, I know you're evil. <laughs> he says, no, if you then, though you're evil, though you're sinners, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, in Luke's gospel it goes like this, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That should just give us so much confidence in approaching God for strength in time of need. Finally, the fourth marker now of the Jesus-worthy life, giving joyful thanks to the Father and giving joyful thanks to the Father. Um, joy and thanksgiving as heart attitudes I want to say this what I mean by heart attitude is a basic foundational attitude of how we live this is, this is just a really crucial part of the Jesus worthy life this is not like the last little bit where it's just like sounds nice, yeah give thanks with joy this is really a part of it um, this is what I'd love if, if it was more clear and I need to work on this myself, or I need to ask God for grace for this myself, that you just sense about Christians there's this joy and thankfulness, this gratitude. So many people complain about life, whinge about life. 
whinge about the weather, this, that, and the other. Um, and we as Christians, we should be just different. That's what it means to be salt and light, just to be different in our attitude. So joy and thanksgiving, that's a, that affects the attitude, the way we live our lives uh, despite the circumstances. Uh, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read this verse, for the joy, you probably know it, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So look at what this verse shows us about the relationship between joy and suffering. Joy is something that is independent of, not attached to, not contingent upon, not connected to circumstances in life. Rather, it's connected to God being in his presence, having fellowship with him. It's forward-looking in faith. I can see ahead of me the, this, this, that scene in Revelation, a great multitude of all nations from every tribe, nation, and tongue before the throne of God, worshipping the Lamb. I'm going to be there. That gives me joy. I'm looking at that vision, not at what might be going on right now in my exams or in, in the way I'm relating to people in my flat share. There might be some trouble there or, yeah, what the doctor said or, you know, what the boss said. It's forward-looking in faith rather than present-looking by sight. Joy is really understanding who I am. I'm a sinner. Who Christ is. Christ is a saviour. What Christ has done, he has saved me. That's what we sang in that last song. And wasn't it precious to sing it? And what God has planned, namely to draw a great people, multitude to himself for eternal fellowship and then being captivated by that plan being engaged, motivated, driven by that, that my thoughts run to that, run not by the circumstances of life. Joy is holding on to these precious promises. And in the Jesus-worthy life, we give thanks joyfully. Giving thanks, just to, to hammer this message home again about what it means to live as a Christian, giving thanks implies that what we've received hasn't, is not what we earned, but it was a gift if somebody, if somebody gives you your paycheck, you can be, give them thanks as a, just a, a courteousness. Oh, thanks. But you actually, you've earned it. You know, you've earned your paycheck. But if, if, if someone gives us free grace, a gift, we say thanks because we understand we haven't earned it. It's been given to us free of charge. So, giving thanks implies that what we've received is not, it's not what we earned, but it's a gift from God. And so thanksgiving really characterizes us because we realize what I said at the right, right at the beginning, that we're not earning our own worthiness, but that we've received all that we have through what Christ has done for us, that we're saved by, that we live in grace. So those are the four markers. Bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with God's power for endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks. These are the marks of a Jesus-worthy life, and they're, they're marks that I want to commend to all of us here, including myself in that. Paul has laid it out for us here. He said that's what it looks like to live a life worthy of the, or in line with who we are, called by God, given the gospel, saved by Jesus. And just to finish up, let me read the last part of the verses. Um, verse 12, the second part of verse 12 through 14. We should give joyful thanks to God 
And here we go. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light? For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul now steps back from his prayer. He steps back from the implications of that prayer, what it means for their lives, to remind the Colossians and to remind us here of the foundation for our new life. Paul shows them again here, don't forget, um, don't forget the saving work of the Father and of the Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, as, as I said, you know, giving thanks implies a gift, and Paul shows us the gift here. Um, he shows us the gospel again, that we've been saved by the Father sending the Son and the Son giving us redemption, that is forgiveness of sins. The gospel, let me say this, is not the entryway into the Christian life to be soon discarded and forgotten as we forge ahead in our own strength. The gospel is the power and the resource for the whole Christian life. And here we, ha- we hear it so clearly from Paul. God himself has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. That's quite a phrase and we could dive into it another day. Basically what we, say, we want to say is God's given us what we need so that we can stand in his presence as part of his people. He's given us what we need. We haven't got, done it by ourselves. He's given us all that we need. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's taken us out of the power of sin, out of the power of death, out of the power of the devil, and he's brought us. You can see this transformation, what I was trying to say before, this clear cut. That's what happens at baptism. You are in the kingdom of darkness, now you're in the kingdom of light. You are under the power of the devil, now you're under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God has done through what Jesus has done on the cross for us. How has he made this transformation? Through Jesus Christ redeeming us. The word means to, to buy someone, to purchase someone out of slavery. We were enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan. And Jesus Christ, by shedding his blood on the cross, has purchased us. He paid the full price to purchase us out of that slavery to sin by his blood shed on the cross. And that means in purchasing us us out of that slavery, he has forgiven our sins. Your sins are truly washed away at your baptism as you place your faith in Christ. And exactly that is the argument that Paul is going to lay out for us in Colossians chapter 2, and it's a great argument. It just makes for so much joy. So I want to invite the worship team up now. Because um, I, want, I want you to see from these last couple of verses that this is not just information that Paul is giving us here about what's happened. He, he really wants us to be worshipping Christ. I really enjoyed our time of musical worship before the message and I pray that the Holy Spirit would animate our, our, our last uh, song or songs here. But, but Paul wants you to see here, look, you were lost in darkness and God did what was needed. He freed you. He rescued you. And, he, and not only did he rescue you out of, out of darkness, he put you in a kingdom full of light. He put you in a kingdom full of light. He gave you hope. He, gave, he gives you all the resources you'll need. He'll be with you. He gives you his promises. He gives you life. He gives you his spirit. And he gives you a glorious future. I want you to see here. My words are inadequate. I pray the Holy Spirit is active here. See the greatness of Christ. And would you stand now and let's worship him.